Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Guys, we have entered into December. You know what that means, right? We've entered the time, the season, the month of my birthday. I know. <laughs> Hold in your excitement, guys. Hold in your excitement. But seriously, we, we have entered into this time where we are working our way through the Old Testament, and it's nearing the end. We're getting to this point where we're, we're nearing the end. And I hate to ruin the story for you, but it's, it's, it's a happy ending. And, and we're excited to work our way through it in our series, Redemption Through History. But we also enter into a new season. We enter into a season, as you guys have heard already a couple times this morning, of Advent. Now, Advent just means arrival. And so this is something that we've been doing for hundreds of years as, as believers. And so I'm excited to, for the only the second time in the history of Hill City, to get to work through this with you guys. But let's start, again, just kind of bringing these two together. We're talking about this redemption through history. Now, Daniel last week did a great job, and he had this great visual. And confession, I actually hadn't seen that before last week, and so I tried to take a picture of it. And so we're going to put it up again. And if you want to take a picture of it, it's a fantastic timeline of the Old Testament. And so if you haven't been here with us, we have worked our way from the beginning, from Genesis, and we have worked our way all throughout the story of the Old Testament and the story of God's people of Israel. And in doing so, we're watching the overarching narrative of what's going on. And so you can see we've worked through Genesis, Exodus, all these, these books, and have worked our way through past the judges into the, the reigns of the kings, of Saul, of David, of his son, Solomon. But now we've gotten to a point where things aren't going so well. The, the, the people of God have disobeyed. They have, they've divided. Solomon's sons uh, divided over some really just unfaithful, stupid decisions and led to a split of this mighty nation where you have a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. Now, again, if you want to go back and listen, last week Daniel talked about this people group called the Assyrians who wiped out the whole northern kingdom. So all of a sudden, all of your, your, your friends, the people that you met in the marketplaces who went to the north are now gone or dispersed, leaving just two tribes within this kingdom of Judah. But now we've gotten to a point where a different people group, the Babylonians, they've come in. And though they're a little bit nicer than the Assyrians, they, st they still uh, will just lay waste to much of the southern kingdom to the point where they are now they have now found themselves again in exile. So as we enter this time in our, our series, uh, in this time in our series, and we also enter into this time of advent, of arrival, we have to talk about uh, this big idea. And the first Sunday, as you guys have seen and have, have heard already this morning, is this idea of hope. So during this month, we remember and we think about hope. We think about what we have our hope in, in the coming of Jesus, and focusing, again, how that applies to us now, but we also get the ability in this series to look at how that applies then. And so today we're going to combine the two and we're going to talk about this idea of hope. And allow me to start this by saying, I know a thing or two about hope because some of you guys may not know this, 
but I'm a huge Kansas City Royals fan. That's right. And if there are people who know a thing or two about hope, it is Kansas City Royals fans, because <laughs> that's all we had for a while. And you might accuse me maybe of being a bandwagon fan, of joining in just in the last couple of years, but I've actually been a fan since about 2006, 2007, um, really at the end of an era of what we would call not-so-competitive baseball. Um, if you were Royals fans within the 90s and 2000s, things were not good. It was a bit of Babylonian exile in and of itself. Um, and so I was hired on in 2006, uh, 2007, as, um, I'll call it entertainment. Uh, I was actually the mascot for one of the minor league teams in Northwest Arkansas. Yes, a giant seven-foot Sasquatch. Um, if you know me, I'm a pretty tall guy. I only looked out the mouth, so you probably had another eight inches on top. So about seven foot, kids loved me. Um, but what it did was during kind of high school and into college, it allowed me to get to see a lot of these players. So truth of the matter is in baseball, if you're bad for a really long period of time, to kind of make things a little bit more balanced, if you're bad, the next year you get to pick near the beginning of the draft, which means that the top talent available because you were so bad the year before, you got first dibs of that pool of talent. And so over years and years and a couple more years of not being so good, we got to accumulate quite a bit of talent. And so while I was showing up to the ballpark every day to dance and to entertain, I got to watch these guys day in and day out. I'm a big baseball fan, so any opportunity I could, I was watching these guys. And what happened was, is over time, and baseball is a weird sport because those, those talented guys, they don't get to make an impact right off. So you might draft them one year, and you might not even get to see them on your favorite team for four, five, six, maybe even more years. And so you got to watch these guys develop over time and got to see them get better and better. They started winning more and more at some of these lower levels to the point where all of a sudden they started popping up in the Kansas City Royals and all of a sudden, we started being a little bit more competitive. Now, I know not all of you guys are baseball fans, so I'm going to try and do the best I can to explain it to you a little bit of how this works. So there's a picture I found of how baseball teams are kind of split up. So these are all Major League Baseball teams across the country. It's split down the middle. So on the, the left three columns are what we call the American League. The right three columns are what we call the National League. And each column is the division that they're in. And so, as you can see, the left-hand column is all the American League East teams. So you see at the top left, that's the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, you work your way down, Boston, New York, Tampa Bay, Toronto. In the middle is the Central. So you have Detroit, Kansas City Royals there near the bottom. You have the American League West, kind of there in the middle with the big H, starts with Houston. You have Los Angeles, Oakland, that kind of stuff. And then the right three are the National League teams. So another group of West, Central, and East, where you can even see, I know some of you guys are probably Cardinal fans down there in the bottom right, the SL. It's all right, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so this is kind of how things are broken up. And I, like I said, for a long time, the Royals just, we weren't that competitive. And there came a time, kind of near, as the talent was starting to get better and better, in 2012, the commissioner of baseball, alongside the owners of all these teams, got together, probably out of a move to get more money, but they decided to start what was called a wild card game. So the winner of each of these divisions, whoever had the best record, would automatically get to be in the playoffs. They get to fight for a chance to win the World Series, the championship. 
The issue is, is they had a fourth spot that they would allow the best of the rest to fight it out. So baseball, it's a long season. It's 162 games. If you're a wife of a baseball fan, you know that it's a long season. And what happens is, is you can play 162 games, play really, really well, but not quite win the division. So then you've got to slug it out. It's a winner-take-all, one-game-only chance to make it to the playoffs. So it's competitive. It's intense. And what we found ourselves in 2014, all of a sudden that talent I got to watch day in and day out in these small-scale small environments, all of a sudden they found themselves in this wild-card game. Now, what's awesome about this was my dad, out of the loving kindness in his heart, bought myself and my wife tickets to go see game one of the first round. Actually, it was game three, but it was the first game in Kansas City. In Kansas City to watch the game. Here's the catch. They got the tickets. Tickets were on sale. We got them. But to watch it, they had to win that one game. It's a, you could have be... You could have done really, really well all year long, but if you lose that one game, no playoffs. Your season's over. You have to look towards next year. And so in 2014, two years after this, this one-game slugfest was announced, I had tickets to the next game. They just had to make it. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, when this game started, they were playing the Oakland Athletics in Kansas City, but again, not quite the playoffs. So the game starts, they kind of go back and forth for a little while, but all of a sudden, the Oakland Athletics turn it on, and they are hitting home runs, scoring runs, and the Royals are not. To the tune of by the eighth inning, so you only have nine innings in a baseball game, you only have six outs remaining, two more innings to go, the Royals found themselves down seven to three. Not only on top of that, you're also playing against one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball at the time, and a guy named John Lester. Things were not looking good. This team that I had followed for almost 10 years were on the verge of making it to the playoffs. For the first time in almost 30 years, it's a lot of exile, a lot of losing. I had tickets to the first playoff game, and they weren't holding up their end of the bargain. I'm gonna be honest with you guys, I was angry. I was really upset. And if you ask my wife about that night, I was visibly very frustrated. And so I have a confession for you guys this morning. At about the seventh inning, after the Oakland Athletics had hit the home run to go up seven to three, I turned it off. I couldn't handle it anymore. My heart was breaking. My team was losing. All they had to do was hold up their end of the bargain, and they weren't. And so I turned it off threw the remote on the couch, said, I can't handle this anymore. I'm done. Plus, it was a weeknight. I had work the next day. Give me a break. So I go to bed, angry, upset. But at about 1 o'clock in the morning, my phone starts going off. And if you guys, I'm sure you've experienced this before, if your phone starts going off in the middle of the night when the room's dark and it starts kind of brighting up the whole room and you're in your half-asleep days trying to just flip it over or turn it off or throw it halfway across the room, whatever works for you. And it just, it keeps going off. And my first thought was, oh, it's probably all my jerk cardinal friends who are rubbing it in right now. Because I was pretty excited about the games. I was telling everybody. And so they're probably rubbing it in. But it keeps going off. I'm like, all right, my cardinal friends aren't that insistent. They're not that heartless. So I turn my phone over 
And it's all my Royals friends. Scott Hardwick, you're one of those. Appreciate that. All my Royals friends, they're all texting me. My dad, everybody, and saying, can you believe it? I don't think so. I get to looking. They found a way to win it. Of course, I just say I watched the whole thing, but obviously I didn't. So I wake up, wake up my wife. I say, we got something happened. I run out into the living room, turn on the TV. I look and they won. In extra innings, they had found a way to come up against one of the best pitchers in baseball to, for one of the most miraculous comebacks in playoff baseball history. The greatest of any wild card games. Again, it's still pretty new, but it was an incredible game. And in my defense, I watched the highlights. I don't think my heart could take it. It was just, it was a lot. And side note, proof. Did get to go to that game that they won. And if you look at the next picture, even better proof. That's right. <laughs> Beautiful bearded guy. Side note, I feel really bad because my wife is actually behind the foul pole right now. <laughs> so she missed her moment of glory. It happens. So here we were, this group of desperate people who after years of waiting anxiously and losing, finally being rewarded for their faith, finally being rewarded for what they had earnestly hoped for all those years. No more broken promises, no more unfulfilled expectations, no more losing. Finally, we will get to be champions. And that, my friend, is the 2014-2015 Kansas City Royals. Amen. Hope. <laughs> I'm kidding. I still got, we still got some time. Now, we as a fan base might be going into a few more years of Babylonian captivity, if you know what I mean. But hope, in and of itself, is a very powerful thing. It's a thing that can completely change how we as people perceive and deal with things in the world. You see, we as humans, we, we, we tend to fall into hope. We want to hope. We, we want to anticipate something. We want to set expectations for things. But a lot of our frustrations stem from this idea of unmet expectations, where you, you say you want it to be one thing, and it doesn't quite happen. And if we think back to where the Israelites are in this time, there's probably a lot of unmet expectations. They hear these stories from their ancestors of all these amazing things that God would do hundreds of years ago, and they think, that must have been incredible, but look at us now. And I want you to think back. Daniel did a great job last week, and so I want you to try and put yourself as best as you can into this story. A lot of your brothers, your friends, your neighbors, the people that you bought goods from in the market, if they went to the northern kingdom of Israel, they were wiped out, never to be seen again. A lot of the people that are there in the southern kingdom with you, when the Babylonians came in, they either got wiped out, they got taken away, or you're staring at them with, and you guys are pretty much it. Here's the truth of the matter. If you are living in Judah at this time, after Babylonian captivity, you are nothing. On the scale of the world powers, you are a nobody. And the only thing that you have is the hope that maybe, just maybe, those stories that your, your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents had passed down to you, that maybe, maybe they were enough. 
maybe, maybe that God is still out there, and maybe he's not so upset with you that you can find a way to bring it back. Well, the answer to these questions within the story, but then also our story, in of itself is how we would understand the idea of hope. That in a time of trying, in a time of desperation, we're going to look at this idea. We're going to do three things this morning. The first is that we're going to look at the words of one of the best and greatest Old Testament prophets that existed, a man named Isaiah. We're going to look at the words that he used and how he explained this idea of hope into this story. We're also going to look at what the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says about hope and how we are to look at it today. And the third is we're going to learn probably a little bit better than you knew before and learn and sing this song, a very familiar song that we'll get to when the time comes. So now we're going to jump into the story, this redemption through history. If you can, turn in your Bibles or on your phones to the book of Isaiah. So now Isaiah was written over a course of time, but the main portion of Isaiah was really written around this time, this time of, of captivity and exile. And, and he had a unique role, Isaiah did, in that he was a prophet. Now, a lot of times when we think of prophets, especially in our day and age, it's a lot different than what a prophet truly was in the Old Testament. We think of, of kind of a, almost like a fortune teller, of somebody who would, who would say something that would happen, and then depending on how good of a prophet they were, it either would happen or wouldn't. But that was not necessarily the case for Old Testament prophets. They would not necessarily foretell the future, but a large bulk of what their role would be, they did do that, but a large bulk of what their role would be would be to tell forth and to communicate God's message of that current time to the people. So Isaiah was written around the year 500 BC during this time of Babylonian exile. And during this time, really the only written records that they had, mind you, not everybody didn't have a copy of it, but everybody kind of had this idea of the first five books of the Bible. And really that's about it. So they kind of knew where they came from, but that's really where it ended. And so to hear from the Lord during this time, you needed a prophet. You needed somebody to step in and would tell you how to respond to these situations. Now, Isaiah was one of these prophets, and during this time, you had a lot of what we would call false prophets. You'd have somebody who'd be sitting in the corner of the market, and he would start yelling and random things, and, you know, depending on, again, if they were a true prophet or not, these things would actually happen. So you had a lot of people who were kind of just falsely saying things, would claim themselves to be a prophet, and you could pretty much prove them false in the next week or two. But Isaiah was not one of these men. Isaiah... And even in retrospect, as we get to see everything take place, Isaiah was a mighty man of God who did speak things that very much came true. If you turn real quick to Isaiah chapter 37, we're going to jump around a little bit to start because I want to show you that this guy, he knew what he was talking about. So starting Isaiah 37 and verse 6, it says, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in them, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now, what's unique about this is the Assyrians come into the northern kingdom, wipe you out. Well, they didn't stop there. They kept going. They kept marching. And all of a sudden, they started making their way onto Judah. Now, if you're living in Judah at the time, you see 10 tribes, 10 of your 
tribes of your brethren just got wiped out. There are only two of you, two tribes. And so you're thinking, we're next, we're done. There's no chance. But during this time, you had good, you had good kings and bad kings. Judah was spared because they had a lot of good, faithful kings. And in this time, King Hezekiah was a good king. And so Isaiah comes in and tells the people, tells Hezekiah that the Assyrians, they're not going to make it. You will be spared by the Assyrians and they will, not only will you be spared, they're going to leave because of something that happened internally. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, The Assyrian king, Sennacherib, uh, had an internal conflict with the people closest to him, including his own family. And because of that internal conflict, they backed out. They went back. They, they did not move forward to destroy Judah. So they were spared, just as Isaiah had said. If you go to the next chapter over in Isaiah 38, he tells King Hezekiah another prophecy. At the time, Hezekiah was, was really struggling. He, he had a very severe a disease and was pretty much on his deathbed at the time. Isaiah 38, verse 5. He says, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. Take a wild guess of how long, how much longer King Hezekiah lived after this prophecy, 15 years. And so Isaiah, he was not that, that rambling guy in the corner that nobody listened to. The prophet Isaiah was a mighty man of God who spoke much needed truth to the people at that time. And so knowing what we know about this time, uh, Daniel did this last week, and I want to, I've tried to kind of communicate it to you, but I think the best way to understand kind of where everybody is at at this point is to actually read from Isaiah. Like I said, Isaiah was alive during this time and was very descriptive in his language, language of what was going on. And so we're going to go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 1. I want us to get a feel for the tone of the kingdom at this time. Again, we, a lot of destruction, a lot of devastation, a lot of, a lot of killing. You are at rock bottom. I think Isaiah communicates this, starting in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. For context, Sodom and Gomorrah, well, well before that, was a town that got wiped, wiped out by God, completely obliterated off the face of the map. And so despite the near miss of Assyria coming in and not wiping them out, they still are in despair. They're still struggling at this point. And the book of Isaiah is believed, again, to have been written during this time. And so there's, there's portions of it that are referring directly to this time of exile, and even to the northern kingdom and talking about all these things that are going on. And this is a turning point for the Israelites. He, he's, he, again, as Isaiah is a great man of God who's communicating these much-needed truths to them. But they have to act on it. They have to hear what he's saying and do something about it. And I think as we're thinking about it, there's a question I want to pose to you guys. And I want you to, if you're taking notes, write this in. And I want you to think about it even today as we leave and this week. 
Here's the question. How much healing has come for you when you were at rock bottom? Let me say that again. How much healing has come for you when you were at rock bottom? It's easy for us when things are good to say, look at me. I can, I can put my hope in myself and my own abilities because look at what I'm capable of. It's easy to do this. The question becomes, what's it like when it shifts a little bit? And here the Israelites were, out of their own decision-making, they had exchanged their very identity, who they were as God's people, and tried to exchange them for what they thought was better. They would see the gods and the idols of all these other big, mighty nations, and they thought, I think they might be onto something over here, and they would leave who they were as God's people to pursue that. They thought they were being clever and smart and thought they were being independent and saying, we could do this. But in the end, they just made themselves to be the fools. And so Isaiah calls them out, but he doesn't just leave it with that. So you have that tone and calling out where they're at and what the need is. But in doing so, helping them to understand their need for the word of God. Because in the end, again, whether it's then or even now, oftentimes it's hard for us to really appreciate a word from the Lord until things are going bad. It's easy for us to ignore when things are going good, but oftentimes that rock bottom feeling is what gets us to that point and makes our ears a little bit more ready to listen. And so he communicates this, this need. And if you turn your Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 7, he builds that need and explains to them now their need for literally a divine intervention. So Isaiah 7, verse 13, and he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. 500 years before he arrives, Isaiah tells the people, the few people that are left, to have hope that God has not forgotten them and that one day a Savior will be born. He will be born in a miraculous way. His name will be Emmanuel, which literally is translated to God is with us. He will eat curds and honey, which is a reference to the food that only the poor could afford, in reference to how he would come into the world. It's his name, his very name alone of Emmanuel, and this truth is what the people needed to hear in this time. And that even though they had all been wiped out, that a savior was coming to bring things back to the way they were supposed to be. And even if you continue turning to chapter 9 of Isaiah, he continues to press into what it is that you're hoping for to create the hope in this band of survivors. So Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hundreds of years before Christ would ever step foot on earth, this man Isaiah would encourage this group of people, this empty, downtrodden, broken group of people that were living in a rundown shell of a city, living in the shadow of who they once were. It was in the midst of their brokenness that Isaiah, and the word of God, would bring them hope. It is in the midst of our despair that God brings a way out. It is in the midst of our emptiness that God provides his son to nothing of our own doing. We did not deserve it, but out of the outpouring of his love for us. You see, the hope of these people 2,600 years ago is the same thing that should be your hope this holiday season. And it would be easy to be like the Israelites in this season, to exalt the things that you shouldn't exalt whether it be of your own doing, what you were capable of, and to exchange that for the truth or for a lie instead of the truth of who you are. For just like the Israelites, your hope, our hope, is found in the birth, death, and resurrection of a perfect baby boy. One who, as the prophet Isaiah states, starting in chapter 53, verses 3 through 11, one of the most well-known prophecies that ever happened. I want to read it. It's going to be a little bit lengthy, but I want you to listen to it. And again, imagine what it's like to be these people, to hear these words spoken. Isaiah 53, 3 through 11. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah begins to voice that soon, very soon, there will be hope. There will be hope incarnate, hope walking the earth. And we can read this and know that the same hope that they had all those years ago is the same hope that we have. For you see, as we go into this Advent season and we're thinking about hope and what that means, there's a man named Karl Barth, who's a, a pastor theologian at the beginning of the 20th century who explained this season really well. Why don't you listen to this? Advent and the Christmas season go together 
like the dawn and the sunrise, that it is the expectation of future revelation, a faith that knows exactly for whom and for what it is waiting. It is a fulfilled faith because it lies hold to the fulfilled promise, a promise for Israel and a promise for the church and Jesus Christ. He has come and he will come again. This is the essence of Advent. So in this time of Advent, the very first Sunday, as we go into this season, the theme again, this idea, is hope. And nobody talks more about hope in the New Testament than a man named Paul. And so as I kind of explain, make the transition, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. And I know not, not everybody knows this, so I want to try to explain this a little bit. Uh, Paul wrote many of the books that we would know in the New Testament. So what he would do is he would come up into a, a land and he would plant a church. He would train up leaders for that church. And then as he left to go plant more churches, he would occasionally write letters to them to let them know, to encourage them to do various things. And so a lot of the, the books of the Bible that we know were actually letters that Paul wrote to these churches. And so First uh, and Second Corinthians uh, was actually the first and second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Maybe it's Ephesians. Well, that is the book that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, even Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica, etc. There are even people that he actually wrote letters to that, again, became books of the Bible that we know of today, whether it was maybe First and Second Timothy being the first and second letters he wrote to Timothy, and even Titus. But with all these letters, with all these of what we would call books, there's one in particular that has severely impacted how we understand hope. And that is the book, the letter to the church in Rome. Now, the letter to the church in Rome is an absolutely incredible book. In Paul's other letters, he would often speak to things that were going on. Like I said, with different situations, he kind of had a pulse on what was happening. So he would speak into those situations. In Rome at this time, there was a big division between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. So the Jews being God's chosen people all throughout the Old Testament. But now after Christ, they're dealing with a situation where, where Gentiles can be believers, according to Christ. But there's still some strife in understanding what that looks like. And it was because of this strife, because of this conflict, and the resulting letter that Paul wrote... It is this letter that many consider to be the most elaborate, precise, and absolutely essential book to understand what it means to be a Christian today. But what's interesting is alongside of that reasoning, alongside of that understanding of what it means to be a Christian, the book of Romans uses the word hope more often than any other book in the New Testament. And the way that he gets to this idea of hope is the same way that we understand the gospel week in and week out here at Hill City. For you see, starting in Romans 1, he helps these Roman Christians to understand that no matter who they are, what they do, where they come from, anything like that, no matter who you are, it starts off with this. You're all sinners. So starting in Romans 1, in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him 
as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul recognizes, as we should, that since the creation of the world, God has made known his power and his holiness, and that it is because of his power and his holiness that we even exist today. Yet in verse 21, that even though we knew him, we became futile in our thinking, or some translations might even say that we glorified him not as God, that we were not thankful for all the things that he had given us, and that our foolish hearts were darkened. Or how about in verse 22 that said, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal, all-powerful, holy, and perfect God for images resembling mortal man. This can be a little bit of a confusing statement because you look at yourself and you think, well, it's kind of who I am, mortal man. There's an important aspect to the story that we have to understand. This goes way back in our series in redemption through history. And it starts in Genesis. Because starting in Genesis... When we were created, when God created humans, and Paul refers to this exchanging of the glory of the immortal God, he's referring to the fact that God created us and made us into what is called the imago Dei. It's a Latin phrase, imago Dei, that means the image of God. So what does that mean in reference to this verse? Well, we get in Genesis 1.27 that says, So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. So it means that out of God, all of God's creations, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all the creeping, crawling things, and all the beasts of the field, that it is we alone that bear the very image of God, and that because of that we have an inherent value. So now knowing this, knowing that we represent God, that we are image bearers, we are not God himself, we are his image on earth, understanding this, we now read verses 23 through 25 with an understanding of what God means when he says, or what Paul means when he says, that we've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men. It means that we have taken our role, our very identity, as the Imago Dei, as image bearers of God, and have exchanged them for dreams and desires and idols that we think will better satisfy us, that we think better defines who we are. Now, what does that mean? Thinking about it in your own lives, maybe you're a person who you work a job that maybe you push 60 70, 80 hours a week, not out of necessity to provide, but because it makes you feel good. You feel better there than at home. Or how many of us try to live a life, what we would call Instagram worthy? A life without problems, a life without faults, with all the right filters that will do whatever we can to make sure that we are perceived the right way. Do we think that if we have the right car, the right spouse, the right house, the right life, that somehow maybe that alone will be what satisfies us? Or sadly, how many of us only view ourselves because of what someone has done to us? You think, 
how can this be? How can I be an image bearer of God knowing that this is what has happened to me right now? I am not an imago day. I'm a victim. That you struggle to understand your identity outside of that. That God has made you into something else. We've exchanged the truth about who we are and what God has made us to be for a lie. A lie that says that it's all about what you did last night or what people think of you or what you are capable of that defines you. The truth that I want you to hear today is that if you're trying to find your hope in any of those things, that you will be let down time and time again. This idea of hope This idea of anticipation, of of expectation. That if you put yourself into that situation, you make yourself that, you will be let down. And the first section of Paul's letter to the Roman church that we get to read explains that. But like Isaiah, he doesn't leave it there. Because Paul understands that we need to hope in something. That without hope, we are lifeless. I think that's why Paul talks about it so much is that especially after saying things that he says in Romans chapter 1 or even a little bit later in Romans 3.23, that he communicates to these believers that say, no matter you're Jew or Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all will try to find their identity elsewhere. Yet he transitions because there is hope. You see, Paul knows what happens if you hope in yourself and in your own abilities. So he writes these beautiful lines in Romans chapter 8. So if you can turn there real quick, I want you to see that I'm not just making this up. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see it? Our hope is not in our own strength and abilities, but our hope is found in our own God-given identity, that we bear the very image of God, that we have been set free from our bondage, and that we are now children of God. Not by what we've done, but that because of Christ we've been adopted by him, and because of that, we are saved. Our hope, our anticipation, and our eager expectation is found in the finished work of Christ. Our identity is in him, and Paul gets that, and that's what he is trying to communicate to the Roman church in this letter, and that is what I want you to understand this morning. You see, the Israelites in 500 BC hoped for a savior, a savior who could save them from the things that were happening to them. But they also need a savior who could save them from themselves. And that's where we find ourselves in the stories, waiting for that savior. So now here in a little bit, we're gonna receive communion. And we get to remember the hope that we have in that broken body and in the blood that was shed. But as we do, we're gonna be singing a song that we're all probably familiar with. It's a Christmas carol called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, at this point in our series, I think this song is going to mean a little bit more. And so there's there's a lot of versions of it that you've probably heard, whether it's pentatonics or otherwise. And so 
I want you to, as you're singing these, as, as you're reading these, as you're, you're listening to these words, I want you to think about it a little bit more. Now that we understand what the story looks like, I want you to think about what's being said. It's a song that was originally written by a monk between the years 800 and 1000 AD, but then transcribed into Latin around 1400, and then it was turned into the version that we know in about the mid-19th century, mid-1800s. And there's a lot of great lyrics. There's a lot of great ideas. And so as you sing, I want you to, to listen to the melody, whether you're thinking it in your head. I want you to listen to the melody. What's different about it? It's somber. There, there's something else going on. You're not joy, joying to the world, harking the angels, or telling it on any mountain. It communicates the life that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 that says, a sorrowful yet always rejoicing as having nothing yet possessing everything. You see, Advent-like life will not always all be joy and jingle bells. But whether we are busy, defeated, overwhelmed, or depressed, let us all share in the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. I want us to think about these things so that as you sing these words, you're contemplating what it means in your own life. O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, God, be with us and ransom captive Israel, knowing that we are captive Israel at this time. We are spiritually exiled and understanding what these words mean now that we have the understanding of the story. That mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. God is with us. We'll come to you, O Israel. O come thou rod of Jesse, meaning that he would come from the line of Jesse, who was David's dad. That this person would free us from Satan's tyranny, that would free us from the depths of hell and give us victory over the grave. That we, as a body, can rejoice because Christ, being from the line of Jesse, has freed us from bondage, from spiritual exile, and has given us victory over Satan and over the grave. Rejoice. O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. A dayspring was just the dawn. And in a reference specifically to Luke chapter 1, verse 78, that calls the dayspring the dawn and the beginning of God's kingdom here on earth. An advent meaning arrival. O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by your arrival here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, God is with us. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide your heavenly home. A reference to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, that says, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. He rescues us from hell, and just as important, he locks the door behind us. Make safe the way that leads on high and close, path, close the path to misery. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe rejoice. God is with us. And just like he came to save Israel in the form of a baby, he has come to save us not from a physical exile, but from a spiritual exile. 
Rejoice, rejoice. God is with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for giving us something to hope. Something to hope that, a hope that will be fulfilled. God, help us to rejoice in this season. To have joy in knowing that you are a God who fulfills his promises. Help us to find comfort in where you have us and who you have made us to be. In this time, help us to see you for who you are and to praise you like you deserve to be praised. It's in your name we pray. Amen.